Good morning, gentlemen. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 4. So if you'll turn there, let's uh, read at least the fourth chapter. And uh, recall that uh, the author of 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings is trying to show us in a really vivid way who is controlling history and also showing us that as God controls history, the most important characters, the ones who really leverage history humanly, are those who have the Word of God and keep it. That's, that's clearly what's being shown us in the, uh, as the Hebrew canon would call it, the four books of the kingdoms. 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. God is in control of history, and those who have and keep the Word of God are the main characters of history. And uh, what we've seen is that uh, Israel was in a time when there was chaos. There was no king. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's the repetitive description in the book of Judges about the nature of Israel. We've also seen that the priesthood was in deep corruption. Well, where is God in the midst of all this? Well, He puts a woman through a lot of agony. She wants to have a baby, can't have one. And the second wife in this family, Penina, has plenty of babies and makes it difficult for her because she happens to be the favorite of the husband. And so the woman with the children is making her feel as bad as possible, making her feel jealous. It's just a terrible scene. But there's enough agony there that Hannah, the mother, the future mother, goes to the tabernacle in Shiloh and just pleads with God, makes a deal with him. If you give me a kid, I'll, I'll hand him over to be a priest. I'll give him to Eli. Even though Eli was corrupt and his sons were corrupt, I'll, I'll give him to the priesthood. And this little Samuel ends up being one who really listens to the Lord. Speak, Lord, your servant listens, is ultimately what Samuel says. And we've seen that Samuel at a young age is given the word of God. Now the Word of God is coming back into the life of Israel through a little boy who's being kept holy in the midst of a lot of corruption. This is God's plan. And we end chapter 3 with Samuel growing in stature and in favor with God and man. Just as Jesus was cited as doing at the age of 12, growing in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. And God is on the move through this little boy. Nobody knows it yet. So now we come to chapter 4, and we're going to see that Samuel's mentioned in the first verse, and then really Samuel, Samuel's life comes to, the, the narrative on Samuel comes to an abrupt end. It'll pick it up later in chapters 7 and 8, but it comes to an abrupt cessation here. And now we're going to be looking at the ark of God. You say, what's that all about? Well, we're going to, we'll talk about the ark and see why it's significant. But the question is no longer who's in charge of history. We've got that established. Israel knows that. But the big question is, who's in charge of God? <laughs> and it's amazing how sometimes God's people think they're in charge of God. And it's amazing how much of our behavior is trying to manipulate God. And of course, the religions of the world are constantly trying to manipulate God. If you if you go to India, for example, 300 million gods, what are people doing? They're bringing them sacrifices and, 
you know, incense and all this and trying to get the gods to cooperate with them and bring them the goods. And it's amazing how often people are trying to manipulate God. We're going to see that's exactly what Israel does. They think they can co-opt God. And God has to show them that not only is He in charge of history, He's in charge of Himself. And He's in charge of Israel. And He has His own plan. And we're going to see how through some more pain and agony, God is working His redemptive purpose out for His people. It looks like He's just, he's just making life miserable for us. But actually, He's working things out for His glory and our good. Well, let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 4. We'll read that chapter and examine it before we go to the succeeding chapters. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter. For there fell of Israel... 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out, when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years.
Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women standing, uh, attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Okay, our biggest problem, our biggest problem is that we forget who God is. And you'll notice in this chapter, this is, I believe, the main theme here, that we often forget who God is. Now, notice why I say that. In verses 1 through 9, we're going to learn that we often treat God like a mascot, like a good luck charm. We just want Him on our side. And it's amazing what we'll do to try to get him on our side. Uh, instead of realizing that, you know, the only side that matters is not our side, it's his side. We want to be sure we're on his side. But we do just the opposite. We try to manipulate God, co-opt him, make him feel guilty, shame him, <laughs> make him feel pity toward us. Come on, God, you know, uh, how, about, how about a little favor today? Uh, and this is exactly what Israel is doing. They're just treating God like, a machine. You, know, you put, put in a couple of quarters and pull the lever and, and you know, a candy bar comes out. Why do I say this? Well, let's look first of all at verses 1 through 2. And you know, we do realize we need help. And even Israel can see that. Uh, that they need help. They've lost 4,000 men on the field of battle to the Philistines. Now the Philistines are the nemesis of Israel during the period of the judges and especially during the period of Samson in Judges and the period of Samuel, the period of Saul and David. So when we're dealing with First and Second Samuel, you'll see uh, the Philistines a lot. As a matter of fact, the Philistines are mentioned 286 times in the Old Testament. 152 of those times, that's over half of them, right here in First Samuel. So clearly, the big enemy that God's people have, has to deal with are the Philistines. And we've got our own Philistines in life, and it's good to know who they are. And usually the biggest Philistine is the one right here in your heart that you've got to deal with, the nemesis that we face. Now let's just talk about the Philistines for a moment. They were a coastal community, and they, they, were, they had a pentopolis. That just means five major cities. And we'll run across those cities today uh, when, when we see how the Philistines are handling the Israelites. Uh, you had Gath and Ekron and, and so Ashdod and so on. There were five major cities. Each of them had mayors, if you will, or governors. They were city-states. We don't know exactly where the Philistines came from. A lot of people think they were, they were seafaring people from Crete uh, in the second millennium B.C. that came over to the coastland of Israel. But if you want to know where they are, they're, they're where the Gaza Strip is now. Gaza was one of the city-states, and the Gaza Strip is still the land of the Philistines. It's amazing. So it was in that general area, and you have a map in your Bible that will also show you where that is. Now, they adopted the Canaanite gods. The Philistines were known to have worshipped 
Baal and Ashtaroth and a god known as Dagon. We'll run into Dagon in just a minute. But these three gods were basically Canaanite gods. So the Philistines uh, were used to capturing foreign gods, co-opting them, and making them their own gods. That was kind of how they operated. So they adopted Canaanite gods. They were big partiers. Uh, even archaeologically uh, today, as we dig in, the, in this area, we find a lot of containers that were obviously for uh, wine and beer. They were known in the scriptures as being big partiers, so they liked to drink a lot. Uh, they were heavy revelers. They were also very aggressive and warlike. They loved to take uh, territory and spread out. Uh, so these were not uh, wallflowers. They were pretty tough dudes. They were also iron producers. And you will uh, remember, and we'll run against this later on in the life of David, uh, they did not allow the Israelites to produce iron or even to sharpen iron instruments. They required that those be purchased from the Philistines because they didn't want the Israelites to have those instruments. They would turn them into instruments of war. It's kind of like with Iran. We don't want them to have nuclear energy because we'll know they'll turn that into a nuclear bomb. And so the Philistines were the same way with the Israelites. In fact, you saw it in this chapter. They said, we better fight because they'll make us slaves just like we've made of them. So the Philistines, you know, the, in, in, we know that in Joshua and Judges, the Israelites were to go into Canaan and to deliver Canaan from its wicked people and to cleanse it. They failed to do that. They were disobedient. Now they're left with the Philistines who are harassing them over and over again, enslaving them, fighting them. Continual skirmishes were going along. It was kind of like North and South Korea. You had a DMZ, but it was just a dangerous, uh, volatile place. And skirmishes would take place there all the time. They were iron producers and they... They would, anytime the Canaanites would attempt to take on the iron industry, the Philistines would go destroy their equipment. They were eventually subdued by David. And that's David's great accomplishment. Is, and we'll see that, you know, beginning with his battle with Goliath, who was a huge Philistine. David eventually quells uh, these pockets of resistance from the Philistines, and his whole life, along with Saul's, was a life of trying to defend Israel against their nemesis, the Philistines. That's who the Philistines were. And so when you've got Philistines in your life, when you've got a major problem like that, you know you need help. So God will sometimes use your difficulties simply to get you to turn to Him. But unfortunately, we sometimes turn to Him in the wrong way. Or we don't really turn to Him. We turn to, uh, try to turn to magic or just turn to trying to manipulate Him instead of really getting Him. Now notice, secondly, when the troubles came, in verse 3a, we ask good questions. So we can realize our need, and then we can ask good philosophical questions, sometimes good spiritual and theological questions. In fact, this is a very nice question they said. <clears throat> they they uh, said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Now, look at how good this question is. Number one, they recognize the Lord's sovereignty in their troubles. Why has the Lord defeated us? They're quite right. It was the Lord who's in charge of the battle. And you have to realize that when things are coming in your life that you don't like, the Lord is in charge of your history. And if you want to know who's ultimately controlling history, it is the Lord. So, good question. Why has the Lord defeated us? 
And you would hope that this question would turn to a good answer, but it doesn't. The answer they come up with is to grasp at rabbit foot solutions. This is what Ralph Davis calls it in his commentary, rabbit foot theology. Look what they say. They don't say, let us turn to the Lord and seek Him. Let us repent of our sins. Let us evaluate how we need to change. Let us seek the Lord and and ask if He would be willing to come and cleanse us and renew us to be His men. No. They say, let's get the Ark of the Covenant. Let's get the, uh, the patten and the chalice off the communion table. Let's get some magical equipment, some place where God promised to dwell. Let's go get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it here. You see the difference between asking Him to come in your life and bringing it here. And you'll find rabbit foot theology all over the place. Uh, I mean, I've done it. I remember in high school playing a basketball game against our rival and things weren't going well. And we had a guy on our team. He, he wasn't a starter, but he was a regular substitute. He was a guard. His name was Monroe Jumanville from New Orleans. And Monroe was Roman Catholic, and he was a devoted Roman Catholic. He always carried his rosary with him. So one day, one game, we were not doing so well, and we looked over, and Monroe was, uh, you know, he was going through his rosary and everything. And lo and behold, we started to win the game. So the next game, we got down a little bit, and everybody said, hey, pass the rosary down here. And so all, all the players were doing the, ro- you know, doing the rosary. I don't know what we were doing with it. We, we didn't know what to do. We were just, you know, hand me that thing. We were passing the rosary up and down the aisle. And the game started to get a little close. And the coach was saying, what y'all doing? And I said, oh, well, we just got Monroe's rosary over here. We're just... He says, pass me that thing. <laughs> so, we, you know, everybody's looking for magic, you know. It has something to do with God. Let's just, let's just get God involved in this somehow so we can win this ball game. Uh, I, I remember oh, my friend, a friend of mine was talking to uh, uh, the uh, former coach of UT basketball, Bruce Pearl. Some of you know the name. And Bruce uh, was being invited by my friend to a Bible study from some men in, the, in Knoxville community. And he said, yeah, I, th- I think I'd like to do that. And uh, uh, my friend said to him, well, Bruce, uh, just, just one word. I mean, I know you're Jewish, but um, we, we pray in Jesus' name in the Bible study. And Bruce is quoted to have said, Man, I'm an SEC basketball coach. Everybody play, prays in Jesus' name. <laughs> so, and you, know, you can see this kind of rabbit foot theology uh, with the, if, you, if you've lived long enough and watched the presidents, you know, when they get in real trouble, you know, we're getting ready to go into battle or, you know, some real crisis hits us, call Billy Graham and get him to fly into the White House. You know, so you'd have Billy Graham, he's friends and buddies with all the presidents at just the right moment, either at their inauguration or some critical moment, just bring in the rabbit foot, you know. Uh, no one's asking uh, a, a Christian a theologian for advice on the economy or social policy or, you know, whether we should be fighting the war in the first place. No, just bring him in and get God on our side. That's the way we all typically operate. When we get the jabbers scared out of us, we're looking for some charm, some, something that might be connected to God. That's exactly what they're doing here. Now, why do I say this? If you'll look at, at uh, this idea of the Ark of the Covenant, let's talk about it for just a minute. And there's uh, actually a picture of it, of course, on page 498. Uh, this Ark was not very big at all. Uh, it was 
45 inches, that's about as, maybe as wide as this table right here. And that's about it. And then it was 27 inches high, about like that, and 27 inches deep. It really was probably a, a lot like that table, about that size. And so it was not very big, but in the scriptures, we, won't, we don't have time to look through it, but you can look at Exodus 25 and Numbers 10, 35, and you'll see that the ark was where God promised to dwell, especially with His people. The ark had uh, inside it uh, some manna from the wilderness. It had Aaron's rod in there and it had the Ten Commandments inside the ark. And you can see it had these carved cherubim over it uh, with their heads bowed because God was said to have dwelt over the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the Holy of Holies. Remember the tabernacle, which was the traveling uh, worship sanctuary that the priests carried. When they stopped in the wilderness, they set up the tabernacle. You had the holy place into which the priests went daily. But then you had the Holy of Holies behind that, where only the high priest went in only once a year on the Day of Atonement to offer a sacrifice for the atonement of all of Israel's sins for the whole year, if you will. So there was God's presence where it dwelt. There in that place is where Moses would have God speak to him. So God spoke, if you will, from the Ark of the Covenant and gave guidance uh, to Israel. And also, of course, the, the mercy seat was on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. If you look at the picture on page 498, uh, where the cherubim are standing, that is the mercy seat. What is the mercy seat? It is the place where the blood of the uh, sacrificial uh, lamb would be placed, or the blood of the goat on the, on the Day of Atonement and of the, the, or of the bull would be placed and splattered on the mercy seat. The mercy seat is the same word that we use for propitiation in the New Testament. In other words, Christ's blood satisfies the wrath of God against sinners. And Christ's blood propitiates or satisfies God. It's the same word for the mercy seat. So Christ is our mercy seat. Now that's what took place in the Ark of the Covenant. And there were very specific instructions about how to care for the Ark of the Covenant that we shall see. Now it's, it's understandable how we can be confused on using the Ark of the Covenant because you remember when Israel crossed over from the wilderness into the Promised Land, the priests were carrying the Ark of the Covenant the way they were supposed to on these poles, and that's the only way you were to carry it. It was covered with a cloth, a special cloth, and they, when they touched the, the Jordan River, the river uh, piled back. The waters piled back and made a clear way for the Israelites. Also, when the Jericho fell, you remember that they marched around the city seven times with the Ark of the Covenant. So for someone who's looking for the rabbit foot real quickly, they would say, oh yeah, man, that, that, that Ark of the Covenant, man, that's, that's powerful. You take that out there, hold back the water, and you defeat Jericho, bring the walls down. These Philistines don't have a chance. Get that Ark of the Covenant and let's go. Now you'll notice Hophni and Phinehas were with them, and I'm sure they were cooperating in the, in the whole deal. Well, not only do we grasp at charms, good luck charms, four-leaf clover, four clovers, uh, anything we get our hands on, uh, uh, some famous preacher or evangelist, bring him in, get him to pray for us, we'll get God on our side. But then notice number four, this would be in verse five, we add a lot of noise to go with it. Let's get all riled up here, let's create a revival. 
So as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. So now we're going to have a, our good luck charm with us and we're going to shout loudly, surely. Now we're going to, this is going to get everybody all riled up so that we can win this battle. Let's get a, let's get a revival going. Well, uh, noise <laughs> doesn't always win the game. Uh, I don't know if you were watching the World Cup last summer, but boy, all across America, we had this nice cheer. I believe that we will win. I believe that we will win. I believe that we will win. And people would paint their face red, white, and blue. I believe that we, thousands of people would gather in uh, parks and cities all over the country and people down there at the World Cup. I believe that we, when the Americans going crazy, they were shouting, you know, tears streaming down their faces. I believe that we, we lost two to one to Belgium. That's what it turned out. So a whole lot of noise doesn't help you a whole lot when you're dealing with things that have to do with God. But when you're dealing with things that have to do with God, you should deal with God and not try to manipulate Him. Now, notice in verses 6 through 9, fifthly, sometimes we observe some quick results. I mean, the Philistines, they had, isn't it interesting? Uh, when you look at verse uh, 8, they were very aware of what had happened, happened in Egypt. They had heard about that. And if you'll look at Exodus 15, 14, you'll see that Moses was quite aware of the Philistines that heard about it. He, in his song, he quotes that the Philistines that heard about it. I mean, it went out everywhere that, that God defeated the Egyptians for the Israelites. So these Philistines were afraid of the Israelites. They knew there was something divine uh, among them. So when they heard all this shout, they said, what's going on? Well, it looks like the Ark of the Covenant is there. Oh, man, we're done. They basically just said, we may as well die in battle as to die as their slaves. So let's just go kill ourselves. Let's just fight hard and just play the man because they were so discouraged. So you'll notice, you can, you know, if you try to manipulate God, get Billy Graham to come pray for you and get a real loud shout going, you know, it looks like you're getting some momentum. Something's happening, but not really because what happened? Well, <clears throat> let's look and see how God refuses to be our mascot and see what happens in verses 10 through 22. First of all, verse 10, disaster strikes. The Philistines were so afraid and they fought so hard they killed 30,000 foot soldiers. 30,000 foot soldiers. That's a major disaster. And folks, anytime you're really trying to lead your life, you're just getting God on your side so that you can win the game, make the sale, get the new car, buy the house, convince her to marry you. I mean, whatever it is, you're just trying to get him on your side. It's not going to go well. Uh, secondly, notice, not only that, but God's judgment comes. And here we see it in, uh, in living color. Number one, the Ark, of the, God, uh, the Ark of the Covenant was captured. An unthinkable disaster for Israel. They lose the main thing that represents God's presence in their midst. And, it, and you know, they're basically saying the glory of God has departed Israel because the Ark of the Covenant is taken. Notice Hophni and Phinehas are killed in the battle. So the priest's sons are dead. And then when they go announce it to Eli, you heard the story in the chapter, he falls over, breaks his 98-year-old neck, and he's gone too. So we've lost the priest, we've lost his sons, we lost the Ark of the Covenant. It, it's God's judgment on His own people. They wanted God to save them by taking the Ark. But ironically, notice what God did. God saved them through His judgments. 
They were being chastened by His judgments. But gentlemen, what He was doing was actually redeeming Israel through these judgments. Notice He's going to show us something very special about the Ark of the Covenant and about Himself in the next chapter. But notice He had already announced the judgment against Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, and here God executes His judgments. Why is this part of His redemptive plan? Because Samuel is going to be the successor. We're going to get Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas out of the way and make room for this little boy that's growing up whose heart is seeking the Lord. And God, through His judgments on His own people, actually redeems His people. So if we're chastened, we're disciplined, even if He kills me, as long as He's seeking to redeem His people, then I submit myself to that. And you know, Eli had already done that. He got the message from Samuel and he said, so be it, the Lord's in charge of history. So Eli, yes, he was, he was disciplined and put to death, if you will, but it was for the sake of Israel. Notice how God, uh, even through His judgments, is saving His people. Now, uh, most scholars believe that not only was the Ark of the Covenant stolen at this point, but Shiloh was destroyed. And that's the last we know of Shiloh. Now, some of you may have been there. It's a great site to go to. And you can see why it would have worked as a place for the tabernacle because uh, there's a hillside all around where the people gathered. They would bring their festival food, their tithes and offerings, and their shards from their pottery all over that hillside because the tabernacle was on one little hill and then around it would be a hillside where the people would gather with their families to enjoy the festival before the Lord. It's a wonderful site. But historically, nothing's happening at Shiloh after this. We believe it was destroyed from other references in the Scriptures. Now, notice not only that God's judgment comes, but in verses 19 through 22, we saw that God's glory departs. So there are times when, you know, God removes a sense of His presence from us as individuals or from our churches, sometimes from a whole nation. He just simply withdraws His hand. Uh, and there's a sense in which Ichabod just... Uh, Kabod, or kavod in Hebrew, means glory. Ik means not, so not glory. So Ichabod means no glory. And when Phinehas' wife was dying, giving birth to her child, she gave more truth than Phinehas had in his whole life when she said the Ark of the Covenant is taken, the glory of God has departed. And she made a true statement that Phinehas could only wish he could ever have made. So... You can see then that God refuses to be our mascot. He's making it very clearly. He's God. He's not some vending machine that you can, you can just simply pull the trigger on. Now let's look at verses, I mean chapters 5 and 6. Uh, let's read through those. In chapter 5 we learn, When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. That's one of the cities, the five cities. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. Some scholars say that when the people who worshiped Dagon came in and saw Dagon on the ground, they went, Dagon. Uh, 
Actually, scholars don't say that at all. Knucklehead preachers say things like that. Verse 6, The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and He terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for His hand is against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God be brought around to Gath. Oh yeah, let's take the ark to our... Let's take the ark to our best friends down there in the city of Gath. Let's see what happens there. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according, uh, uh, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps He will lighten His hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After He had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never been a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, and take the calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord, and place it on the cart, and put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off, and let it go its way, and watch. If it goes up the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Okay. Once again, Ralph Davis, whose commentary I commend to you, he says, these people got the ark in their hands, but then they realized that they were in the hand of Yahweh. <laughs> that was their problem. Let's look and see how God shows the nations who He is. God is now showing the nations who He is. He is the Lord of history. When you contradict the living God, no matter whether you ever heard His name or not, 
He is going to show you who the God of history is. And this is exactly what it does here. First of all, he teaches them that he is the only God. Now, folks, this was typical procedure in verses 1 through 5. When you defeat a neighboring nation, you would typically bring their gods into your temple and put them at the feet of your gods to show that your God defeated their God. And that's exactly what they're doing here. They're taking the Ark of the Covenant, which they took to be the God of Israel. When you manipulate God and treat Him like a rabbit foot, you lead the nations to a lot of confusion. They think the rabbit foot that you've got is your God. They think that Billy Graham is your God. They think that your Bible is your God when you just treat it like a good luck charm. And that's exactly what they were thinking. They brought the Ark of the Covenant in and they put it at the feet of Dagon. And you notice what happens. <laughs> His head falls off. <laughs> and this is a really laughable story for Israelites because they're worshiping the God of the universe who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, who owns all of the cosmos. And here's the little God of the Philistines and His head falls off. <laughs> and the, the words here are really interesting because you'll see that uh, the, they, um, they uh, took up, yeah, verse 3, they took Dagon and put him back in his place. <laughs> it's laughable. So your God, you have to take him and you have to lift him up and put him back on his throne. Rebom. You know, and the pagan gods actually, in their own theology, some of their myths, they do depend upon human beings to feed them. So when you bring the sacrifice to the gods, they're, sometimes they're hungry. They're waiting for you to bring the food. And so you have to support these gods. It's laughable. It's, that's no god at all. And as the psalmist often make fun of these little gods, they say, you know, they have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have a mouth, but they can't talk. You know, they're made of rocks. <laughs> these stupid gods you've got. And so you and I have stupid gods too. How big's your bank account? What kind of prestige do you have? How many people do you manage? What kind of car you're driving? Uh, how, many, you know, how many country clubs do you belong to? We have all these gods, and they're stupid. They have mouths, and they can't talk. They have ears, and they can't hear. They have eyes, and they can't see. And when you put them before the living God, their head falls off. Now, they put his head back on him, <laughs> and then they leave him there again overnight. You'd think they would have learned their lesson the first time. And now, not only his head falls off, but his arms fall off too. <laughs> he has no arms. So I have to get those back up and glue them back on, you know, put the head back on and, you know, take care of their God. It's really, really funny. And God is showing them something. He is the only God. And he is not dependent upon you, Israel. He is not dependent upon you, Christian, to prop him up and make him a God. You're not the one who puts him in his place. He's the one who puts himself in that place and puts you in your place. Unlike all the other gods of the universe, Israel thought that now all was lost because the ark was gone. Here's what God is showing them. I can take care of myself. Did you ever think that you were winning battles against the Philistines because you had better weapons? Did you ever think that you won a victory because you were more clever than they? Did you ever think that it was because you worked out harder and did better training or had superior weapons? Did you ever think that I was dependent upon your little stuff to get my job done? 
I'm the living God, and I can take care of myself. And I didn't, never did need you. I simply allowed you to be recruited into my army to serve me. So here's the Ark of the Covenant with no help whatsoever from any human being. And he seems to be taking very good care of himself. He is the only God. Secondly, he's the judge of all the earth, verses 6 through 12. He's the judge of all the earth. You know, we have these pitiful little sayings like, you know, let's put legs on our prayers. Well, yeah, I mean, I understand what we're saying when we say that, but you don't put legs on God. Uh, he's the living God. He's the judge of all the earth. Or we say, you know, God is my co-pilot. <laughs> That's ridiculous. God, your co-pilot. I see. So he's going to help you out. He's going to help you steer this plane. <laughs> he is the only God. And he is the judge of all the earth. And notice that their big problem here is God's hand. You'll see it in several places. Look in verse 7. His hand is hard against us. Verse 9. The hand of the Lord was against the city. Verse 11. The hand of God was very heavy there. The word heavy is the same word as the word glory. It's a cognate word. It's uh, hand being heavy is kaveh, glory is kavod. And so the glory departed Israel. And glory just means heaviness or weight. The glory departs Israel. But now the glory is against all those who are trying to dominate Him. He is judging all the earth and these tumors break out everywhere. It's worse than Ebola. Then look in, in verses uh, 1 through 12 of chapter 6. And he shows something here fascinating, that he is Israel's God. Now what the, what the Philistines are saying, they get their people together and they make some really good theological statements. They say, you've got to give glory to God. Isn't that amazing? They're the ones who are saying, give glory to God. Israel wasn't giving glory to God. The pagans now are getting the lesson. This God is the only God. Give Him glory. And they say, don't harden your hearts like they did in Egypt. I mean, it's amazing the lessons that the pagans are picking up that are even superior to what the church has. But then they have a method. They say, you know, we're not absolutely sure whether this is just a coincidence that we happen to be getting all these tumors, which, by the way, could be, uh, you know, uh, they, they have these little mice that they are making gold images out of. It makes some people think that this is like the bubonic plague that was... Uh, spread through mice and rats and they think you know because the bubonic plague also gives you know uh, nodules or knots or tumors tumor like looking uh, symptoms and so some people think this was an outbreak of bubonic plague but so the, anyway the Philistines are saying you know we're not absolutely sure that this is the God of Israel who's doing this it could be a coincidence that the head of Dagon and then the hands of Dagon fall off and then we get all these tumors so let's Kind of like Gideon. Let's put a fleece out and let's see what happens. Let's take two cows who have never had a yoke on them. And cows that have never had a yoke don't do very well with a yoke to begin with. And these cows have young. They have suckling young. Let's put their young up, you know, back of the barn. And let's put this new yoke on these cows that have never had it. Now, if they don't go back to their young to feed them, 
and they go right on up the hill where they've never been to Beth Shemesh, which if you've been there is just, just west of Jerusalem. If they go up there and take the cart with the Ark of the Covenant, then we know it's Jehovah God. Well, lo and behold, <laughs> these cows who've never had a yoke on them, never been to Beth Shemesh, are going uphill instead of downhill and are renouncing their own young, which is unheard of, in order to go up this hill and into the land of the Israelites, lowing as they go. There's some kind of, there's some kind of proof. And he is showing, God is showing that he is Israel's God. He is faithful to his people, even when they've abandoned him, tried to co-opt him and manipulate him. Do you see what he's doing? He's, yes, judging all the earth. He's also disciplining and judging Israel. But what's he doing? He's coming back to Israel. He always comes back to you. Why? I don't know. It's called grace. It's called love. It's called his faithful devotion to you and to me. And go figure. We, we try to treat him like a vending machine, and he keeps coming back to us as our father, disciplining us, cleansing the corrupt church of his corrupt leaders, getting people out of the way, lots of funerals, thousands of funerals, cleansing the way so that his people can be renewed. Amazing God. Now, let's look at the final verses beginning with verse 13, and we're going to see that God shows Israel who He is. He not only shows the nations who He is, He shows Israel. Verse 13, Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The, ark, the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offer the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord has struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord, and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son, Eleazar, to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Okay, let's look at this. God is going to show Israel who He is. First of all, He is faithful to His people. He is faithful. I will never leave you nor forsake you. God can defend Himself quite well in the land of the Philistines. 
He can defend himself against all of their gods and destroy them. And after he's done that, he's going to return home to you, even though you mistreated him, ignored him, tried to get rid of him. Amazing God. He is faithful. So therefore, gentlemen, what do we learn from this? Let's trust him. Why are we trying to manipulate him? Why are we trying to control our history? Why are we trying to tell him what to do? Why are we just trying to get him to bless our plans? Can't we trust him that whatever his big plan for the universe is, we just want to be part of his plan? We want to be one of his soldiers. We want to enlist in his army. Can't we just give ourselves to him and trust him with the outcome? Can't you see here he's going to take care of everything? And you've been trying to line up your universe to live it the way you want to live it and get everything to work just for you. And you get really nervous when whenever all your ducks are not in a row. And God is saying, I own the ducks. I own the order. I own the pond. I own the universe. Trust me. Give your life to me. Let me, let me be your leader. Let me be your leader intentionally. I am your leader anyway, either by discipline or by, by favoring you. But one, either way, I'm your father. Trust me. And before you go out into battle and think you've got this great plan, why don't you ask for my guidance? Why don't you seek my word? Why don't you let my will be the dominant will in your life instead of your fleshly will? Trust Him. He's faithful to you. Secondly, notice in verses 19 through 21, He is not only faithful, He is holy. Now, why did He strike 70 men dead? The reason is simple. They were looking down on the ark going, oh, look at this. This is really cool. Man, look at those cherubim. And if you will check out Numbers chapter 4, you'll find that there are very specific instructions to the priests and the Levites about how to handle the ark. And we're not supposed to be gazing at the ark. It's to be covered. Why? God is holy and the place where He dwells is holy. And we're sinful. And so to think that we can just gawk into the very sacred uh, aspect of God's being is a joke and we're going to be wiped out. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, he said, I'm undone for I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He knew that he was not to be looking upon holy things. It's, there's to be a, a distance between sinners and the sinless God. That's the reason for the tabernacle. God gave us the tabernacle so that He could dwell in our midst without our being destroyed. So He he put the central place of His dwelling in the Holy of Holies and put animal skins outside of that so we wouldn't enter and destroy ourselves. And here are the people best from us just staring at it. Now you say, how did they know? Well, if you look back in Numbers chapter 7, you'll find that Beth Shemesh was appointed as a city of the Levites. The whole place was full of Levites. They were responsible to know the Word of God, and they didn't. And they took God's holiness in a very lackadaisical way. You cannot take God that way. If you're to worship Him, you are to realize that He is holy, just as we were singing this morning. And probably the most important thing about God is His holiness. That He is holy other, that He is pure and undefiled, unlike ourselves. So we don't just casually come into His presence and treat Him like a buddy. He is intimate with us, but He's intimate as our King, and we are to tremble before Him. Now notice, once they get the picture, oh yes, I remember now, God is holy. Seventy of my friends just died. Now notice what they try to do. They try to get rid of Him. They say, who is able to stand before the Lord, verse 20, 
And to whom shall he go up away from us? So who shall stand before the Lord? That's a great question. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Says Psalm 15. Great question. But now the answer is another question. How do we get rid of him? Gentlemen, when you really get to know God, you become excited about His holiness. Yes, you tremble before Him. Yes, you fear and revere Him. But you want to be as near to Him as you can get. You want to be as near as any human being can get. And the glory of being in Jesus Christ is He gets you as close as any human being could possibly be. He unites you organically to Him. Paul calls it the head and the body. That's how close we are to Christ. He's the head and we're the body. He calls it the husband and the wife. We're in intimate union with God through Jesus Christ. This is what he's doing, bringing us into union with the holy. It's amazing what he's done for us in our salvation. But we have to realize he is holy and worship him as such. So what do we take from this? Not only do we trust him, but gentlemen, we revere him. We worship and adore him. And we spend our lives becoming better and better worshipers giving gifts more generously and giving them more joyfully, bowing down before Him and singing more lustily of His greatness, learning how to praise Him in corporate worship and private worship because He is holy. Lastly, notice in verse, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 7 how gracious He is. After Israel had behaved as Israel behaved, you would think that He would just want to wipe them off the face of the earth and just be done with them. These people are hopeless. Even the priests were corrupt. So are we. And if God were to treat us as we deserve, we'd never see even His backside again. But God keeps coming back to us, gentlemen, and He always will. When you put your trust in Christ, your mistakes, your sins, your failures do not keep you away from God. They are more reason for God to keep moving toward you, to buttress you and strengthen you and, uh, and uphold you. And that's exactly what He promises to do. He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. That's quite a promise. So you can leave this room, go into the rooms where you're going to be serving today, and you go with this confidence. God is faithful to me. God in all of His holiness is a great and majestic God. And God is gracious to me. And no matter how much I've sinned, no matter how many things I've really blown in my life, He's always going to take me back. As a matter of fact, He's going to take the initiative to come back to me. And my only task is to humble myself and to to let Him forgive my sins. Let myself be totally indebted to Him. He's in charge and I'm not. God's in control of all of history. God's in control of God. God's in control of you and of me. Let us pray. Father, thank You for this great lesson from Your Word of how you are controlling all of history and you are controlling yourself and you cannot be co-opted nor manipulated. Uh, And Lord, we ask your forgiveness for all those times we've sought to do so and pray that you would clarify in our minds who you are and who we are and that we today would be renewed in our enjoyment of your being over us. Every false god must bow before you. Every human being, every nation must bow before you, for you are the only true and living God, and we worship you in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless, gents.